Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Well, as you saw, we're in the middle of a series. It's called uh, God's Design for Singleness, Dating, Marriage, and Beyond. And the beyond is parenting children, parenting parents, and uh, the, the reality that we're all part of God's family. If you weren't here last week, you missed an awesome message by our director of student ministries, Mark Lutz, on dating. Uh, the thing that was really great about it was it was humorous. Uh, he has a very unique style when he was talking about men. He went like this, and boys were sort of like this. And, um, and also, the most important thing was it was biblical. It was true. And I, a young man in his mid-20s, uh, in this culture, standing up and speaking the truth in love is not a common thing. So I appreciated that. If you missed it, you can see it on uh, newlifexn.org, www.newlifexn.org. Uh, just go to uh, our, our website and click on media. It'll be the very first message that we'll, you will come to. Well, actually, it's the second one in the series because I talked about singleness the week before. And uh, when I talked about singleness, one of the things we realized is because in 1 Corinthians 7, which uh, we read from and we're going to read from again today uh, during the message on singleness, we found that singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. And actually, the Apostle Paul thought that singleness was better because he thought Jesus was coming back real quickly. And uh, because of that, he said we should devote ourselves in singleness to following Jesus and basically getting ready for him to return. But even in the message on singleness, Paul talked a little bit about marriage. He said that because it's difficult to be single, it's okay if you want to get married. And in the culture in which Paul lived uh, in Corinth in uh, 30 or so A.D., when that was written, maybe 40 A.D., Corinth was the, the center of decadence of the Roman Empire. Um, to live as a Corinthian meant to live a sexually immoral lifestyle. And so Paul was seeking to do pretty much what we're trying to do. And that's to speak the truth in love about singleness, dating, marriage, and parenting in a world that uh, doesn't really see much value uh, to the truth in, in matters regarding that. Uh, today, as we turn to marriage, uh, I, I did what Mark did. Mark went, he said he didn't know all that much about dating uh, from a biblical standpoint, so he Googled it, and he found uh, somebody else's message, and he stole from it. Well, I didn't do that, because I know a lot about marriage, being married for 35 and a half years, but I did find a quote about marriage from the American Psychological Association, which I want us to read, because this is a secular institution, and what they said about marriage is that marriage and divorce are both common experiences. In Western cultures, more than 90% of people marry by age 50. Healthy marriages are good for couples' mental and physical health. They are also good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. However, about 50, 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States divorce, and the divorce rate for subsequent marriages is even higher. It's sort of interesting that a secular organization affirms that marriage is good for the couples. It's good for our, our, our emotional and our physical health. And it's good for children because children who live in a, a marriage where the family is married and, and, and a good marriage, a healthy marriage, they're happier and they're more emotionally and socially and physically adjusted. Now, who would have thought that if you had a man and a woman in a marriage relationship that their children would be happier and they would be happier? Well, anybody who's ever read God's design for marriage, because God's design uh, in order of creation is such that if we do what he says, 
we will be healthier and happier. Actually, it doesn't even probably take reading this book to know that people who live in healthy marriages um, are happier than those who don't. Uh, you, if you had a thimble full of common sense, you'd realize that. But one of the things that I realized as I read that uh, positive statement is there's a however, as there usually is about anything positive in this culture. However, 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce, and the divorce rate is even higher for subsequent marriages. So our culture produces a failure rate in marriage of about one in two. And you might think, well, if we're Christians, it would probably be lower, right? Well, actually, no. In fact, some studies have shown that Christians actually divorce at a higher rate than the culture at large, which uh, I don't understand that. But that's sort of the bad news. I'm going to start with bad news. I'm going to bring good news. But the bad news is this. Marriage, although even secular psychologists agree is good for our health, is very difficult to maintain. So today's take-home point, and for those of you who are here for the first time, every week we have a take-home point. It's the one point we want you to hear, to remember, and then to go out and in the power of the Holy Spirit, live it out in the week ahead. And so here it is. Marriage was designed by God in the fabric of creation and is intended to bless and benefit all who enter it. Last week, Mark told us that he's no longer dating because he's married, been married for a year. And so he said nobody wants to listen to what he has to say about dating since he's not dating anymore. And then he said he's only been married for a year, so nobody would want to hear what he had to say about marriage because he's not been married long enough to, to have an impact. No, that wasn't true because what he said about dating and actually into marriage was very true. He said that men... If you're dating and actually into marriage, there are four P's that we need to practice. And those four P's start with pursuing the person in a, in a God-honoring way and then protecting, providing, and proclaiming the one that you're dating eventually, your wife. And then he said about women that women are supposed to be women of integrity and honor. As we find in Proverbs 31, there's a listing of the kind of person that women are supposed to be um, so that whether in a dating or marriage relationship, they will be able to engage the, the, the husband or the boyfriend in a way that honors God. Now, I, I have been married for 35 and a half years, so I, I, I'm not going to say I'm the authority on marriage, but I'm an authority on marriage and what it means to have a healthy marriage. And, and I can sum uh, what it takes to have a good marriage up in two words. And before those two words go up on the screen, I know some of you are thinking it's true love, some of you are thinking it's, you know, deep friendship. After worship today, somebody told me it was, yes, dear. <laughs> that works too. But, but the two words that I have in mind are hard work. Hard work. I know you don't want to hear those two words because nobody wants to hear hard work about anything. But if you want to have a marriage that honors God and a marriage that's healthy and happy, then what needs to happen is hard work. Because even after we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and we're talking about marriages where the two people are Christians first. We're going to talk about where that's not the case, but where two people are following Jesus, even in that condition, even when two people have reserved themselves uh, sexually for marriage and then they get married and they put Jesus first and they put their spouse above themselves, even then it's still hard work because we're selfish, basically. Even after we're born again, we still put ourselves first. Uh, most of us don't wake up, most men don't wake up in the morning and say, wonder how I can serve my wife today. Most men wake up and say, wonder what's for breakfast today. And, and, and if we're going to, if we're going to have a 
healthy marriage in this world in particular because, you know, the world around us is not really helping us out with the idea of marriage. First of all, what, what it doesn't help us out with is the idea that marriage is a permanent thing. It doesn't help us out with the idea that marriage is even necessarily between a man and a woman. It doesn't help us with the idea that marriage is going to be hard because what are we told? Oh, if you really love the person, it's going to be easy. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But let's, let's turn to the Scriptures and see what the Apostle Paul says about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, you might want to turn there now. We're going to start in verse 10. But before we do that, let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for Jesus and the life that he gives us that is truly life. We thank you for your Spirit who lives and dwells in us, who know him as Savior and Lord, and give us the power to do things that we could not do otherwise. Right now, as we focus on marriage, God, I pray for those who are married in this room that you will let us have ears that hear what you're saying to us. And those who are not married, that you would give us ears to hear your truth and to, to sustain marriages through our prayers. God, we pray that what takes place here in this moment will bring glory and honor to you and will advance the cause of your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Paul talks about singleness for nine verses, he says this, But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. In a little bit, he's going to give us a command that he says comes from him, not from the Lord, but it's actually from the Lord also because everything that Paul wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this is directly from the Lord, and it says, A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him, and the husband must not leave his wife. So Paul tells us if we're married, and remember, in verses 1 through 9, a couple weeks ago when we talked about singleness, he said it's better to be single because Jesus is coming back soon, and if Jesus is coming back soon, we can devote ourselves more fully to his work when we're single. But then he says here, but if you're married and you're a woman, don't leave your husband. That's a pretty negative statement. If you're married, don't leave your husband. I mean, it's a good thing to not leave your husband, but you, wouldn't you think you'd have something more positive to say? In fact, as, as you look in the scriptures, one of the things that surprises me a little bit is there isn't a lot of positive instruction about marriage. It's mostly in the negative where, for example, in the book of Malachi, an Old Testament prophet, God says, I hate divorce. Why doesn't he say, I love marriage? You know, why is it in the negative? Well, the reason it's in the negative is because there is so much going against us when it comes to marriage, that we have to understand what we don't want to do. We don't want to leave our marriage. We don't want to get divorced because everybody says that marriage is easy. And when you're dating, it is easy. I mean, if it isn't easy when you're dating, you really are dating the wrong person. Because when you're dating, you have that infatuation, that feeling of being in love. And so, you know, your girlfriend is, is the, the one. And, and then you get married. And unfortunately in America, for most people, the first six months of marriage or the first year, that's as good as it's ever going to get. Because after six months or a year, that in loveness goes away and, and you stop ignoring the self-centeredness and the lack of listening and all the bad habits. And you, and you say, I'm stuck. You know, I mean... I don't have the same feelings that I used to have, and she certainly doesn't have the same feelings she used to have. And, and, and here's what we say. I married the wrong person. 
I married the wrong person. No, what happened is we married the wrong idea of marriage. We married the wrong idea of marriage. In this culture, the idea of marriage is it's easy. It shouldn't be hard. Donald Trump, for example, not a very good uh, illustration for how to stay married, but Donald Trump said, I work hard every day. And when I come home, I don't want to work hard at my marriage. I want it to be easy. So how's that working out for you, Donald? You see, you want it. Everybody wants everything to be easy, but everything good in life is not easy. The only things that are easy are stuff that's not really that good for you. The stuff that's good for you takes hard work. And the other thing is, the other problem that we have, or challenge, I should say, when I was a little kid, in fact, we talked about, I talked about this with somebody who's been married for 47 years. Uh, they went out afterwards, and they were talking about marriage, you know. And I said, when we were growing up, if you were married 35 years, people thought you hadn't even gotten used to being married yet. You know, everybody was married for 35 years, 40, 50, that was common but now it's not. It's not common anymore. Why is that? Because over the past 40 to 50 years in this culture, we have been lied to vigorously about a lot of things. But one of the things is this. There's no difference between a man and a woman. There are no differences between men and women. I mean, really, there aren't such things as men and there aren't such things as women. There's just people. We're all just people, and we all ought to understand. We all think the same. We, we act the same. You know, physically, we're the same. I mean, a five-year-old knows that's not true, and yet our culture has been teaching it and acting like it's true. There's only one place where I agree that women and men should be equal. It's in the workplace for wages. If a woman does the same job as a man, they should get paid the same. They won't do it the same. Because women and men don't work the same, because they don't think the same. Now, if you want somebody in a marriage situation who thinks like you, you can't have that. Because God created us differently. And in fact, we're going to go back right now. We're going to skip out of 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to go to the first book of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to look a little bit at what God did to make the situation sort of challenging. And at the same time, amazingly wonderful. So here's what happened. Adam, which the word Adam in Hebrew literally just means man. So man, the first man was created by God. And then after God created the man, he put him in the garden. And there was all this nice vegetation for the man to eat and take care of. And then God created all the creatures of the ground, we're told, and, all, and of the water, all the different creatures. And, and he, the man got to name them all. And the man was having a good time, you know, he had a lot of pets, exotic pets and everything, you know. But the thing was that the man look, looked in the eyes of the cow, there was nobody home. You know, I mean, it was like, hey, I can't have a conversation with this thing. What, what's up, God? I mean, you know, it's nice having a conversation with you, but isn't there another being on the, on the planet that, that I can actually interact with in a way that, you know, that, if, that it feels like sort of like interacting with someone like me? And so God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I mean, there were all these creatures, and yet the man was alone. And so God, it says right here in Genesis 2, verse 21, 22, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while the man slept. The Lord God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. Now, many can contend that this is just a, a myth or a legend, you know, that God really didn't take out a rib and make a woman. It does say that here, but the point is very, very clear. God wanted to create someone, not something, but someone who was very like the man, and yet at the same time different. 
And in fact, in, in creating the woman for the man, God made them in such a way from a physical standpoint that the oneness that he's going to talk about later is physically possible. And, and as, as Adam wakes up, here's what happens. It says, Adam woke up. It says, at last, the man exclaimed. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. You know, for Adam, that statement was literally true. It was literally true that, that this woman, in, in fact, the Hebrew is Isha, Ish. She shall be called Isha, for she's taken out of Ish. And Isha was literally taken out of Adam. For me, that wasn't literally true. But when I was 17 years old, I made a sort of an interesting deal with God. I was supposed to go to West Point the next year. And so what I said to God was, you know, I can't get married for four years because I'm going to go to West Point, and so I don't really need a wife, but I'm going to eventually want to have a wife, so why don't you tell me when the right one comes along? Just, like, just let me know. Because I dated a couple of girls, and it hadn't worked out really that well for either of us, and so I just thought, I don't want to think about it anymore, I don't want to worry about it, I don't want to deal with it. But when the right one comes, just let me know. And so I thought it was going to be like four years down the road, but of course... God doesn't always have the same timing as we have. And so about three or four weeks later, after school started in September of 1974, I went to this meeting in Indiana, PA, and there was Nancy Fairman. And when I saw Nancy Fairman for the very first time inside of me, the Lord said, she's the one. And I knew that feeling of, at last. Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, I was so scared, I didn't even ask her out for eight months. But eight months later, we started dating. And then uh, a few years after that, we got married. And we've been married now for 35 and a half years. And when I read this passage about bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I know exactly what it's talking about because God made that person for me. And, and uh, it's just an incredible thing that God did. Now, here's the thing, though. We might think that because that person is made for us, that we would be able to understand that person. Not true. If you're a man and you want to understand somebody, you need another man. I mean, I have an accountability partner. I've had him for 23 years. And a lot of our conversation over the 23 years was, hey, uh, does your wife do this? Mm-hmm. Does yours? Yeah. Why do they do that? We don't know. No clue. I haven't figured it out yet. And 35 years later, I still don't know. Why? Why does she think that way? And if you are a woman and you, you want to have somebody that really understands you, find a woman. Be friends with the woman because they get it. You know, I mean, why does it take four women to go to a bathroom? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't understand. You see, we are not the same. However, however, when God put us together, when God created Adam and God created Eve, you know, and Adam was supposed to do the four Ps. He was supposed to pursue her, protect her, provide for her, and proclaim her. And a woman can't do that for a woman. And a man can't do that for a man. A man can do that for a woman. And that's how it's supposed to be. And, and the woman is supposed to be a woman of integrity and honor. And when that happens, it's an amazing thing, but it's still hard work. Now, I don't think it was hard work back when Adam and Eve were first created. Because if you read the next couple of verses, it says, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, the man and his wife were both naked... But they felt no shame. So this explains why a man leaves his father and mother. Interesting thing is Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. Adam and Eve were created. They weren't born. 
And so it says, father and mother, they leave their father and mother. So what's happening? God is establishing, okay, we have a man and we have a woman. We're going to have more men and women because these men and this woman are going to come together. They're going to have children. They're going to grow up. And people go, oh, that's weird. They married their brothers and sisters. No kidding. Who else would they marry? There weren't any genetic problems in those days with that. Okay, but anyway, that's answering the question. I've been asked that like 500 times since I've been a pastor. Where did, um, where did Cain get his wife? His sister. Ooh. Right? Okay, but anyway, that's a, back on the, off the rabbit trail, back to the point. Okay, on the point is that God established that when a man and a woman would grow up and they would leave their family of origin, they would cleave, that's the old King James Version, cleave to one another, and they would achieve oneness. And anybody who's ever been at a wedding where I've officiated or been through premarital counseling with me has heard my little rhyme, leave, cleave, achieve oneness. And if you have a problem in your marriage, I can guarantee you it's one of those three things. You haven't left. You know, I tell you what, sad is the man or the woman whose husband or wife hasn't left home. That really is a problem. And, and you know, you don't just have mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law. You have all the mother-in-laws, too. And, and if, if those people are more important to your wife or your husband than you, there's a problem. Then, cleave. What does cleave actually mean? It means to be together tightly. It means that when I have a problem in my life, I don't go ask somebody else about it. I ask my wife. And then when I don't understand, I go ask my accountability partner. But I don't go to my accountability partner first. I go to my wife first. That's what it means. It means I always go to my wife first. And achieve oneness, everybody knows what that means in the physical way, but it's also spiritually. It's also emotionally. That's what the oneness is all about. And, and it says, interestingly, it says, the man and woman were naked and they were unashamed. Think about that. Adam and Eve didn't have any clothes on. Eve was created. Adam wakes up. There's a naked woman. Here's a naked man. And everybody's cool with that. Somebody said to me last night, Pastor Chris, do you know there's actually a TV show out now called Dating Naked? And I said, I do know there's a TV show like that. I don't watch it. It sounds pretty weird to me. But it wasn't weird because why? Because there was no sin. There was no sin in the world, so everything was good. And the man and the woman didn't even feel a, a bit of shame because there was no sin. But here's what happened. They'd been together for a while. They'd been practicing. I guess they didn't have to worry about the leave part. They'd been cleaving to one another. They'd been achieving oneness. And then along came sin. And when sin came into the world, God did several things. Number one is he cursed the ground. And that meant that Adam was going to have a hard time working. Work was no longer going to be fun. It used to be. And then the next thing, he turned to the woman and he said, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and yet you're going to have a desire. In some translations, it says rule over your husband. There's going to be this tension, conflict. And so now it's going to be hard to be married because of sin. I think it was easy to be married for Adam and Eve before sin came into the world, but none of us will ever know what it's like to be easy to be married. I had a guy came out after first service, sec, first service today. He said, we've been married for 51 years. I said, 51 years? He goes, yeah, it's still hard. I said, thanks. <laughs> but it is. I mean, the point, and, and he says, he said this, it's hard, but it's doable. And I've had people tell me all the time, you know, over the years, well, you know, my wife and I have been married 32 years, and we've never had an argument about anything. And I say there's one of two realities going on there. Number one is you're lying. Number two, you don't talk to each other very much. 
because we think differently. We're not going to be the same, and sin causes problems. And now what happens is, if we work hard, and if we let Jesus in the center of our marriage, and if we let the Holy Spirit work, and if we're very forgiving and we understand grace, our marriages will work. God never removed His grand and glorious plan to leave Cleve and achieve oneness between a man and a woman. That's what He said in the beginning. That's how it still is. It's just harder now. So by the time Paul came on the scene, there were a lot of challenges. And, and so he talked a little bit about marriage, not very much. He just said, don't leave your spouse. And then he said this, well, wait a minute. I want to speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a command, direct command from the Lord. He's saying, this is sort of impressed upon me by the Spirit. I want to tell you, if a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer, she is willing to continue living with him. He must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. So what is it, what's going on there? What's going on there is Paul is saying in a, what we often call an unequally yoked situation where the one spouse is a believer in Jesus and the one is not, even in that case, the marriage can work. Even in that case, it can be a good thing. And in fact, it is a good thing because the Christian brings holiness or sanctity to the marriage and to the children. And we don't talk a lot about holiness and sanctity these days, but we ought to. Because what it says is that marriage is an institution that has holiness as part of it. Because the, the main character in a Christian marriage is Jesus, right? And Jesus is in relationship with the husband and the wife. And even when only the husband or the wife are following Jesus, there's still sanctity or holiness in the marriage. Paul said marriage is always a good thing because God created it even though he preferred singleness because Jesus was coming back soon. And even when there's a situation where the husband and the wife are unequally yoked, it can still work out. And once you, you know, one of the things that Mark said last week that was very helpful about dating is never, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, never date somebody who isn't. Why? Because once you start dating, you don't know where that road leads. Because nobody can say, oh, I'm just going out on a date. Some people went out on a date, now they're married. You know, every marriage usually starts with a date in this culture and in this day and age. Back in the olden days, it didn't. Like Mark said last week, your, your, your dad just said, you're getting married to her, you're getting married to him. How's that? That doesn't work that way. You go out with somebody before you marry them in most cases. And so make sure, Paul says, you know, make sure that you're equally yoked. If you're not, it can work out, but that's not God's best design. So he concludes his teaching with these words, but... If the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. And then he says, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize your wives might be saved because of you? Paul was first and foremost an evangelist. When Paul was struck blind by Jesus on the road to Damascus and he became a follower of Jesus, his whole life was transformed. And he realized there's only one thing that really matters. And that is if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Because the decisions we make now matter for eternity. And if we don't know Jesus now, then when we go into eternity, we will be separated from Jesus in a place the Bible calls hell. 
And if we do know Jesus, we're going to get to spend eternity with Jesus. And Paul knew that that was the number one most important reality in everybody's life. And then he said, wait a minute, you're a Christian and your husband isn't. You're a Christian and your wife isn't. Well, don't you realize you could save them? You could be the reason they get saved. Now, how does that work? Well, Paul doesn't tell us, but Peter does. In 1 Peter chapter 3, what Peter says is to the women who are Christians whose husbands are not, he says, live lives of purity and reverence before the Lord because if you do that, you will win over your husband. Does that sound familiar from last week? What did, what did Mark say? Women live in honor and integrity. That's purity and reverence. And, and by the way you live, over time, there's a tendency for the reality of Jesus to sink into people. Now, Paul recognized that sometimes the non-believing spouse leaves because sometimes all spouses leave. But the, but the opportunity is always there in a marriage where it's unequally yoked at the moment for the marriage to become equally yoked because the believing spouse leads the non-believing spouse to the Lord. So here's the bottom line. The best marriage in the world takes hard work. The best marriage in the world takes hard work. Whether your spouse is a believer or not, whether you've been following close to Jesus or not, it's hard work to be in a good marriage. Ruth Graham, who was the husband of, or the wife of Billy Graham, uh, and, and think about this. Billy Graham traveled all over the world. He spoke to more than a billion people about Jesus in his lifetime. So he was away most of the time. And Ruth was at home with all these children. And so somebody, an interviewer, once said to Ruth, you know, with Billy gone all the time and you having to raise this brood of kids, have you ever thought of divorce? And without hesitation, Ruth said, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. <laughs> and we all laugh because we've all thought of it. You know, anybody who's been married more than six months has thought of divorce or worse. And that's the truth. Because it's really, really hard, really, really hard to be married. And I want to close out this teaching with three quick nuggets, if you will, about marriage. And the first one is simply this. If you want the best marriage you can possibly have, you need to go home and work on the person you see when you look in the mirror. Did you hear what I just said? The best way I could have had my marriage be better than it is over the years is for me to draw closer to Jesus. Because the, when I draw closer to Jesus, it makes Nancy want to draw closer than, to me. If I had invested all of the time I've wasted over the years trying to get Nancy to change or to do what I wanted to do in becoming more like Jesus, our marriage would be incredibly better than it already is. The second thing is, if you want to have a great marriage, don't give yourself an out. In our, mar in our society, marriage is for as long as it works. When I got married, when Nancy and I got married, we said in our wedding vows that we were going to be married as long as we both shall live. And we had no idea what that meant. I was 21, almost 22. She was just 21. When we said as long as we both shall live, I didn't realize that I was going to get white hair someday. I didn't realize that I was going to live so long. And I didn't realize that it would sometimes seem even longer than it actually has been. But I had said, as long as we both shall live. And we've been through some serious stuff in our lives, and it goes on every single day. 
but there's no out clause in our marriage. So if you no, have no out clause in your marriage, then you either have to resign yourself to being miserable or you have to work really hard so it won't be. And then the last thing is, after I just said that, I'm going to seemingly contradict myself. Because as a pastor of 30 years plus now, I have seen a relatively few marriages that needed to end. And what I'm talking about is when there's physical or emotional abuse and violence in a marriage, there needs to be immediately a separation. And unfortunately, in many cases, there needs to be an end. And the reason I say that is because of the devastation that's caused when that doesn't happen. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief, that's the devil, comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I, that's Jesus, have come that you may have life in all of its abundance. You cannot have life in all of its abundance if you don't have life. And we all see on the news situations where couples stayed together in violent situations, and one of the, or both, of the couple ended up dead. So I'm saying there are rare exceptions to the reality. And Paul already acknowledged that. If, if you're married, stay married. But, you know, sometimes you have to leave. That's what he said. If we're Christians and if you're not equally yoked, that sometimes happens. And, and, and I know that's a very negative statement, but I have unfortunately, because I've been a pastor so long, I've personally seen the outcome of, of marriages that have lasted too long. And then the people don't even have the opportunity to live. The last thing I want to say is to those of you who are in that 40 to 50% of Americans who have had a divorce. What, what do I want to say to you? I want to say this. By grace we have been saved through faith and not of works, lest anyone boast. In other words, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I preached a message similar to this about 15 years ago, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you called me a sinner. I said, no, I didn't. The Bible does, um, because divorce is a sin. But what I hope you heard me say is, I'm not judging you or anyone who has sinned, because then I would be judging myself because I have sinned. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul starts off with these words, there is now therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't stand condemned because we have done something devastating in our lives. We only stand condemned if we fail to receive the forgiveness, the grace, the goodness that God offers us in our lives. So I want to do two things here concerning divorce. The first thing is I want to say we never, ever have the right to vilify anybody who's had a divorce. At the same time, we need to stop minimizing divorce as something that can be experienced like the cold. Because God established marriage in the very fabric of creation as something to be enduring, something for the health and welfare of us all. And, and as in a culture like ours, where divorce is so easy and so common, we who are followers of Jesus must never opt for the easy way. Because the easy way is almost always the wrong way in the kingdom of God. Today, uh, our take-home, or our, our commitment, I should say, is uh, very long, longer than usual. 
it sort of had to be long, and I actually shortened it because Nancy suggested when she was doing the connection that it was way too long. And uh, I said, yes, dear. And uh, <laughs> so we changed it. And it says this. I will invest in my marriage all that God intends for me to give it. If I am not married, I will pray for God to bless and strengthen couples who are. I will invest, those of you who are married, whether you're married to a Christian and you're a Christian, or whether you're married to a Christian and you're not, whether you're both not Christians, if you invest, if we invest everything in our marriages that God intends for us to give it, then if our marriages are terrible, they will become good. If our marriages are good, they will become great. And if our marriages are great, they will become the best they can possibly be. That is God's plan and intention for marriage, but it will be hard work. I want to say something very specifically to those of you in the room today who have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You know, if you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you cannot avail yourself of the most important tool, I hate to minimize the Holy Spirit by calling Him a tool, that you have available for your marriage. Because if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that means He isn't in charge of your life, and it means you don't have the Holy Spirit's power at work in your life. So if you need to say today, Jesus, I have never trusted you, or even believed that you exist, but now today, I trust you as my Savior, meaning save me from sin and death, and my Lord, which means my owner, I ask you to come in and for your Spirit to fill me so that I can live my life. If you need to do that, let's take a moment right now for you to do that. Just say, Jesus, come in, take over. Make my life new. Let me receive the power of your spirit that I might live my life in the way you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. And for those of us who are married who are Christians, and yet our marriage hasn't been going the way we want it to go, um, first thing we might need to check at the door is how we think our marriage should go. Because the culture's view of how the marriage should go isn't right. The second thing we ought to do is call on God and say, God, you created marriage. You established it. You designed it. Show me how to live as a husband, as a wife, the way you intend. And fill me with your spirit so I can. And for those of you who are single, remember, singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. And you might be single at this time. And you might be looking for that one that someday you'll say, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Or you might be single because God has called you to singleness and you're focusing your life on serving Him. Either way, remember that God is in your life for your good. So let's take a moment and let's pray together right now for everybody in the room, regardless of our marital status, that God might be glorified in our lives. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for everybody in this building today. I thank you that Jesus died for us and that he rose for us, that he reigns in power over us and that he prays for us, as your word says. And today, God, we pray that you would fill each of us with your Holy Spirit. I pray that those who have just trusted you for the very first time, that you would fill them to overflowing with your spirit. For all of us who have known you for days, weeks, months, or years, God, I pray that you'd fill us anew with your Holy Spirit. I pray for those of us who are married, that we might bring you glory and honor in our lives. And I pray, God, for those who are single, that you would give them a focus to serve you and to pray for us who are married, that the very institution of marriage which you created, which is being attacked so vehemently in our culture, would be lifted up. 
as what it is, your purpose, your order, ultimately for the propagation of humanity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.